0: So what I'm doing right now, Shadi, is I am signing up for yet another COVID test because one of the things that is uh, a real uh, eye-opener to me on this trip um, has been that um, you have to actually get tested for almost every uh, cross-border crossing you do. Even though I'm fully vaccinated, doesn't matter.
1: OK, so I've heard about this and I, I remember when um, our friend Rachel Rizzo had she's like, oh, where do I get a rapid test? And she's here in D.C. in the U.S. I'm like, wait, people are still doing covid testing. I forgot that was even a thing. And I'm like, why would that even be required? But so well, what's the what's the thought process there for going into Europe? Because we should know to our to your listener. Yeah. Actually, I don't know exactly where you are. I think you're in an... it. Well, I'm,
0: I'm. I'm with our dear friend Rachel Rizzo in Bratislava, Slovakia. We're here together. Okay. On this you know conference. what's funny?
1: Okay, it's actually interesting that you mentioned where you were because I I heard that you were in Bratislava, but I was literally yeah. just about to ask. Wait, where is this city called Bratislava? I honestly wasn't a hundred percent sure. I know you think that I'm trolling you. Yeah, I'm not. That's okay. W-
0: Bratislava is a small little town. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's the capital of of Slovakia, of the the homeland of our dear friend dalibor
1: Oh yes, yeah. Okay, well, theoretically, it could have been in Slovenia or Montenegro or Serb. Yeah. Like, there's no particular reason that Bratislava has to be in Slovakia. So it's a reasonable question for me to ask.
0: Yeah, totally reasonable. I agree. <laughs>
1: So so um, it's a it's not a big city. It's it's just sort of like a small town and that's where the conference that you guys are at happens to be. Well, I mean it's the be.
0: capital. Slovakia is just, you know, the smallish country. I haven't really traveled around it at all. It's a it's a city, you know, it's a city. Yeah. The, the 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 old town is very small and, and cute. Um and we're slightly outside of that in this hotel complex where this 3-day conference Globsec has been going on. Okay, what so, may um, I ask yeah. where were
1: we um, did we Muslims ever conquer um, Bratislava? Is there like a Muslim past where it used to be ours?
0: I mean, uh, I think it's probably on the way to Vienna. So when you were knocking on the goats uh, on the, the gates of Vienna, <laughs> I don't know exactly on which direction you were coming yeah. to Vienna. So if you were trying to sort of hook around Vienna, you might have conquered Bratislava as well.
1: Oh, OK. I should look into that. It's always good to know uh, where my people had conquered other peoples. I yeah, find that yeah, very, no. very compelling.
0: Heartening. Heartening yeah.
1: So tell me, about, tell me more about this COVID thing. So what is the thought process in, in requiring testing um, cross-border
0: well, I, it's 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 the fact that the vaccine doesn't seem to really count for much in a lot of these places. And it seems like it's the it's the fact that the um, what's it called? The the just the means of checking on this just hasn't caught up with the reality that a lot of people in the United States have uh, been vaccinated. Uh, I guess maybe also it's they're just starting to roll out vaccine passports in Europe. But I still see that most of the requirements in most of the countries, when you cross borders, they want a uh you know, 24 to 36 to 48 hour uh, old uh, PCR test. Um, So it's wild. You're just sort of, uh, you know, constantly have to do it. So I'm in Bratislava now. I got tested on Sunday in D.C., uh, flew on Monday, um, had to provide wild paperwork to get in. And then- uh, Wild? What do you mean wild paperwork? An invitation letter, my vaccination record, uh, the PCR test- And then even then there was some question about getting into Austria. They needed another form filled out and I had to, you had to sort of, to get on a plane, you know, it's crazy. They don't let you on a plane unless you show some person all of this because they're not going to turn you around when you land here and they they turn you back. Um, And then so tomorrow, the conference is just finishing now. Tomorrow I am uh, flying to Zagreb where uh, I probably could get in without a... PCR test, but I don't even want to tempt fate because it's not really clear from the, the paperwork. So I'm taking a PCR test. So there's just like no question. So I'm landing on Friday. I'm getting tested on Saturday uh, to uh, fly to Belgrade on Sunday. On Sunday I'm in Belgrade for like 48 hours, and I'm getting tested on Monday to go to Skopje on Tuesday. Uh, And then I have to get tested in Skopje because for an American coming back to the States, you need a PCR test, believe it or not.
1: That's bonkers. What's the thinking behind that?
0: I have no idea. That I really don't get because Europeans aren't even allowed into the into the states right now. You know, Biden still hasn't lifted that. Um, Also bizarre.
1: Like if you have if you really. Yeah. Yeah. If you're vaccinated and I know not like a whole lot of people are, but you have like 30 percent vaccination rates in Germany or France right now. That's thirty percent of people that we could welcome, to you know, for like whatever tourism visits, whatever it might be. Like, why are we blocking people who are vaccinated?
0: Yeah, I totally don't get it. I really, really don't oh, sh- get it. Oh, at sorry,
1: Demir. I think my MacBook Pro is is um, being delivered oh, right now. Hold on, go get it. <laughs> Demir, I'm so excited about this.
0: (laughs) Good, good, good. Um,
1: So, look, is is part is part of the issue that uh, EU bureaucracy and, and regulation that this is just an area of the world where paperwork is the is just what you do, and there's all these extra steps. And is it is it partly about the regulatory mindset?
0: I, you know, Shadi, I'd say I would, I would, you know, that would be my knee-jerk reaction. But as I just said to you, I have to get a PCR test to come back as an American citizen uh, to the United States. And you know, that's it's a weird thing. I forget who it is. You know, it's been such a, a whirlwind being here. Um, I think it was someone at the conference said to me that like that actually must be unconstitutional because um, the someone I think asked someone in the Biden administration about. Americans, you know, not being allowed to come home, basically. And he said, Oh no, no, we're not preventing them from coming into the country. We're preventing them from getting on the plane. But that's not Oh that's wow.
1: Not,
0: that's not right, right? That is
1: crazy.
0: That like that sounds like a major violation, that. yeah. Like so so basically, you know, whatever. I'm happy to get a PCR test. It's it's quite a hassle because I'm really going from city to city like in the next week, you know. Um but 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 imagine you know that that uh, I, I actually can't get into the United States without a, a PCR test, and so it's 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 not just the paperwork. It's it really is. I don't really understand what's going on. I mean, I share your bewilderment about all of this. Uh, the fact that that we need uh, uh, still this level of testing when I'm vaccinated, and I would think that. For the United States that has a, you know, at least can recognize the fact that I have one of those like crappy CDC cartons that has, you know, some strange doctor scribbles on it. Um, they could recognize that and not bother with the PCR test, you know, but maybe there's something else going on. Maybe it's because there was all that talk that that even vaccinated people can be carriers. They want to make sure about that. So I guess I could test positive technically, but not be showing any symptoms. And I might have, you know... Uh, the indian variant whatever is a delta now Mm -hmm. we don't do the racist stuff anymore i hear there's a peruvian variant now that has another greek letter after delta whatever that is gamma Um, and uh so maybe that's why they're doing it but if that's why they're doing it um you know i'm not really expecting travel to get much easier all that soon right if they're worried about vaccinated people carrying carry uh variants into into the country still So maybe this is going to be messed up like this for another, I don't know, couple of months, maybe into next year. And travel is just kind of a hassle because you're just getting tested all the time. Or
1: even beyond that, I mean, it's unclear what is the threshold point where these restrictions ease. I mean, um, vaccination levels are going up, but relatively slowly and only in certain parts of the world. I mean, who's to say this wouldn't continue through, you know, well into next year?
0: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I guess it'll become even more routinized. Um, I got a the interesting here in, uh, thing here in Slovakia. They're doing PCR tests, which I've never had before. They're not going in your nose, but they give you a, a vial of salt water and you gargle it, and you gargle it for thirty seconds, and then spit it back in the vial. Hand them the vial, and um, they have something like within an hour, they have a regular sort of test and we needed that to get into the conference they were testing everyone they wouldn't even let you into the hotel unless you had the spit test so when we arrived i had to wait an hour outside in the sun waiting for the the spit mm. test to come back but the spit test is also a pcr test so this morning i went and did that it just takes them longer to process it so i got i did my spit test this morning and, and six hours later i'm negative so you yeah. know, I'm, I'm good for my next leg so maybe it becomes, you know, just like a part of life now that that as these tests become simpler and less invasive, you just have to build in an extra hour. Um, yeah, you know, for this so, sort of stuff. So you're yeah. So
1: I'm going to be traveling um, partly with you <laughs> next month, yeah. and when I come back to the U.S., I mean, maybe I should do some like nonviolent civil disobedience thing where I refuse to take the PCR test. And then I, I see if the, the plane people prevent me from coming on. Maybe they would let me come on. And then, then the U.S. would prevent me from coming in at the border. And then I, I could start a constitutional challenge. And it could like no, I mean, rise to the Supreme Court think- or something.
0: Maybe maybe they just turn you down at the airport and you sue them for that. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to get turned away. I mean, that's you just make the the paradoxical case that it's not okay to not let you board a plane. You're an American citizen, you have a ticket, you want to go home to your country and this. That
1: seems like an easy way to fame.
0: Yeah. That that I should should consider,
1: yeah. I mean (laughs) and what's the worst that could happen? I mean, if I if I don't board the plane, I would just hang out in whatever European city I happen to be in. And, yeah, I, and I'll,
0: I'll still be there because I'm, I'm sticking around longer. So we can we can hang out while you sue the government. It'll yeah. Be great.
1: Yeah. And then, tw- you know, I can tweet it. I can live tweet this literally at the airport. I'll have my phone and I'll be live tweeting the dramatic the dramatic events. Um, that yeah. could be exciting.
0: What was that tweet you shared by by uh, who was it? Avery James that like the last episode we did yeah. is, is you becoming a Republican. This is like part two of this, right? You're like suing the government and everything. <laughs>
1: Okay, but, I mean, look, let's not take that tweet. Let's see exactly what he said. It was controversial. Let's see. It was. Um, Eye-catching in any case. Eye-catching, indeed. Um, Oh, okay. He said, I'm listening to the latest Wisdom of Crowds live, and I'm convinced the podcast should be renamed to Shadi Hamid, Just Register Republican Already Challenge. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: So, again, if you're suing the government about infringing <laughs> on your rights, next thing you know, you would be railing about the fact that they're taking your guns away from you. And, and yeah, that's that,
1: it. Yeah, that would be funny. Uh, um, Muslims and guns, like, I've never, like, that's always been, like, a weird combo to me. But who knows? Um, but, I mean. But I guess. But, I, oh, actually, well, I know what you're about to say. Well, I guess we are <laughs> sort of known for guns in certain parts of the world. I forgot about that. Yeah,
0: that's all I was going to say. <laughs>
1: But um, I think last episode, I think if people do listen to that one, and if you guys haven't listened to it, um, I'm biased, of course, but I would strongly recommend it. I think it was, and I definitely, I definitely got some notes that it was, there was a very interesting interplay between you and I, Demir. But that mm. that's where some of my, because I, I think I went on a rant about. Um,
0: Indoctrination uh, of your children. Yeah, like I school children. Yeah, and that's like a,
1: apparently yeah. like a right-wing yeah. trope. So I think that I really emphasized that point and made me sound like a Republican Um, or maybe Republicans, some of the more reasonable ones on Twitter, they want to claim me. They've been waiting in the wings for years being like, let's work on Shadi. Let's try to get him to our side. We can just like tip the balance or whatever. I don't know why they want me so badly, I guess because I'm brown. Um, Yeah. So there's, there's definitely been a weird campaign that's been going on, and it's sort of been in parallel to the campaign where the Catholics have, tr- have been trying to convert me to Catholicism and get yep. me to Rome. So right. um, there, there's a lot going on there on both counts. To,
0: do Muslims swim in the Tiber? Like- <laughs> <laughs>
1: Is that a reference to baptism?
0: I think, isn't that, uh was it, Richard John Newhouse? That's where I, I understood it from, he, when he converted to Catholicism. Oh, he got baptized like in like,
1: the in the river.
0: I don't know if he got baptized in the river. I think it's a figure of speech. Oh. But maybe he got oh. baptized in the river. <laughs> but you go swim in the Tiber. Come to Rome, my yeah, friend.
1: Yeah, so, yeah. So, yeah. wait, we're, uh, okay, other question I have about Bratislava and your sense of Europe more generally. Um, how are people, are people out in cafes and restaurants? Are they partying? Or are things a little bit still um, not really open and people are downcast or whatever?
0: So everything opened apparently about like a week or a week and a half ago. Um, I wouldn't say the city is packed. I don't know why. Um, but it's it's downtown. Uh, a bunch of us went out for uh, dinner and drinks. It was normal. Um, You know, I I think people were putting on masks to go to the bathroom inside, but there were no signs, and I think it's fine. Um, Generally, as you noted, uh, vaccination rates are not that high, but they've opened up and seating inside and outside. The vibe at the conference is interesting because, uh, you know, it's a real mixed group of, you know, there's a, a handful of Americans here, and we're all, you know, on the american level we're mostly all from dc and and you know we're sort of perplexed at, at, at a lot of this i ran into our friend uh bruno uh ma- 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 massage bruno's here uh, so i met bruno in person and uh bruno had just gotten his first shot the other day wow and so he was wearing a mask long. everywhere yeah um most of the staff here are wearing masks all the time. Uh, they ask that you wear masks inside at the at the conference room. And, you know, honestly, when you think about it, I'm going to go see my parents now. It's possible to be a carrier when you're vaccinated, even though my parents are vaccinated. Given that it's such a, you know, crowds inside and whatever, I, I've i been generally pretty good about that. And every time I'd run into Bruno and my mask had slipped a little bit, he'd say, he's like, you're showing the fact you're, you're true trumpist side, Damir. what he'd say to me. <laughs> Um so yeah, you know, it's it's weird. And the European colleagues when you talk to them, they are more shell-shocked than the Americans in any case. They're it's coming back to normal. They're feeling that the normalcy is coming back. Um but everyone is just sort of kind of beside themselves in joy to be at like a, you know, a, a crowded conference meeting up with people you haven't seen in a while. I had a really nice uh uh uh, lunchtime discussion with our friend Ivan Krostev the other day. Uh, he's here, and yeah, it's just been—it's been really nice to see people who you know you've just been sort of corresponding yeah, yeah. with, or or uh, at best emailing with, yeah. or maybe zooming if you're lucky. So it's been—it's been good like that, and that's the the good atmosphere in all of this. But it's still, like I said, most of the Europeans are for all sorts of reasons are either halfway vaccinated or not even vaccinated at all. And so protocols are in place, you know? Yeah.
1: Well let's get into some meat, um some policy yeah. substance here. Um look, I mean people uh, our listeners may be aware that, you know, I'm I'm not one to follow I don't like following the news anymore. So actually yeah. I've stopped checking the New York Times homepage out of mm. protest. Yes. I, this is part of yeah, I wanna start a movement. I want to yeah. be a leader of like a cultish movement.
0: Yeah, I think it's, there's one in the Republican Party right now. You could join <laughs> that.
1: So, I'd, you know, look, I probably should have followed the whole Biden-Putin Biden, summit. I saw maybe like yeah. one two-minute clip where, um, you know, someone asked Biden a question and Biden got all worked up and was kind of a little bit rude to her. Uh, Caitlin and Collins, or uh, I believe, right? and yeah. then he apologized later. So I saw some of that being discussed, but I don't even. But beyond that, I have no idea what happened with Putin. I can't imagine what could possibly come out of it that would be particularly productive. It seems like, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm skeptical of these kinds of summits and what, what might actually come out of them. Um, is is how Europeans are viewing the Biden administration several months in now. What is it? Uh, Oh, wow. Almost six months in. Damn, we've had six months of a new administration. Um, It doesn't feel that long in part. And that's the wonderful thing about the Biden administration is that we don't have to care about it all that much. But um, there's a really good article by our friend uh, Jeremy Shapiro in Politico, and we'll include a link in the show notes, where he talks about how Biden is someone who's been a stalwart supporter of the transatlantic relationship for a long time but when you actually look at his policies the past six months he's been sidelining the europeans and not taking them particularly seriously he's not really integrating them in high-level policy discussions Um, and basically uh, shapiro is making the argument that um, europe is europe is on its way if it hasn't already gotten there it's on its way to becoming a geopolitical backwater that becomes an afterthought because they're just thrilled that Biden is president and they're being all like nice and lovey-dovey and talking about how america is back even though america isn't really paying much attention to them there's probably some analogy that we can make in regards to um dating and relationships when you yeah. when 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 the spouse or partner is just like so obsessively into the other person and very dependent on the other person for their own happiness, that can lead the more powerful party to do a lot of gaslighting and basically um, pretending to be nice to their spouse, but actually not changing the basic structure of the relationship. So there's still this very much this imbalance and this undercurrent of disrespect. So I don't know how you feel about that, but I thought that uh, Jeremy Shapiro was um, was persuasive in this regard. The The fact of the matter is that Europe doesn't have much leverage with the U.S., so there isn't a lot of incentive for the Biden administration to change its sort of—to um, change its approach.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I thought Jeremy's piece is awesome, um... And uh, apparently it's getting red all over Europe. Uh, and I think it reflects a lot of the anxieties of the Europeans here. I mean, you didn't mention the one thing that Jeremy focuses on, which maybe spoils the uh, the analogy a little bit, because I'm not sure what role China plays in this uh, gaslighting relationship sort of metaphor. Certainly not the new girlfriend or anything like that. It's more like, well, I don't know what. <laughs> um, the... the uh, uh, I mean, everything you say is is right, and I think that the it does feel uh, a little odd here for that reason. Um, you know, I, there's there's a, a sense of unreality to it, uh, but it's also funny how, in fact, you know, I mean, if I have a, a criticism of the the sort of Biden approach, uh, I wrote about it uh, in the uh, the Friday essay two weeks ago, and then you know. I was tweeting about it, your, your Friday essay last week, you and I are actually not that far away on this sort of stuff, it turns out. You know, I mean, I, you come out a little bit more neo and I, I sort of spin the whole thing in a different direction. But we agree ultimately that, you know, you need to, you need to be creating the space for uh, the values that we, you know, cherish so dearly if we really think that they're universal and apply everywhere. Um, and I think that the, the thing about the Biden folks is that um, they and the Europeans operate in a different mode, which is they they take these things for granted, basically, as sort of given in the world. And, you know, the Biden folks are certainly more in the world than the Europeans are. The Europeans really are. A lot of them really are weird about how they think about, you know, uh, the world outside their borders uh, and, you know, the role of values in it. Um but there's a there's a there's a weird blind spot with the biden folks on this too because i don't know how to put it um they are uh they're so obsessed with concepts um that they're not really paying attention to what's happening in the world if it, if that makes sort of some sense i mean they're paying attention to what's happening in china and they're obsessed with china yeah they're not willing to do uh, the full sort of Pompeo and Trump and declare China enemy number one, as some other Republicans are doing right now and trying to gin up a, a different Cold War. So they talk about it in terms of competition between systems and values and, and the rest of this. Um, and they're concerned about it and they want the Europeans on board. Um, but there's, it's still very much on a conceptual level is that what this struggle with China is. And it's not really clear, you know, what we're talking about, um, mm. the 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 Europeans represent alliances. They don't represent a, a zone of peace that 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 you know. Since World War II, uh, America has been growing on the continent. Um, it represents all the good things and all the sort of kumbaya of alliances. And we need alliances in order to confront China in some as to. So far, unspecified way. I mean, they have ideas. You know, that we need to confront them on digital. We need, you know, space. We need to uh, uh, marshaling our forces so you know America can send more to the Pacific and Europe can be a little bit more self sufficient on the continent here. But it, it's 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 so on this role, like in the realm of of concepts, and not in terms of thinking about geography. And you know, we need to uh, hear some. Borders of where our influence ends and we should be guarding them and and stuff like that And it's weird in the sense that the europeans sense that something's off and the americans are don't care about you know Their fate in some sort of way But because they think about the world the same way when biden talks and his administration talks in this sort of way They are weirdly delighted by it, too And it's it's I can't put my finger on it any other way except it's it's a really weird schizophrenic thing It's kind of depressive here (laughs) Um, but at the same time, they can't help but be like, yes, 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 America's back and it's good, Yeah, it's like, it's if a, that makes any sense to you. It's a
1: triumph of feeling over substance, ultimately. I mean, I think we saw something similar in the Obama years. I would argue that the Obama administration was in many ways quite terrible for Europe because I tend to emphasize the spillover effects from the Syrian civil war and how that became the number one policy issue for major European countries, how to accommodate the surge in refugees and how that basically altered the political landscape in these countries, fueling the rise of right-wing parties, um, integration issues with um, with recent Muslim um, immigrants and refugees. All of that became a profound crisis for, for the European project. I mean, people, it's easy to forget how bad it was and how much panic there was on European borders during that period. But because Obama was like them, because he spoke the same language, at least ostensibly of, you know, shared commitments and values. And um, and he seemed, he had this kind of, um, I never fully understand, understood the hype around Obama in Europe. I mean, you might recall that in 2008, Um, He gave this big speech in Berlin and Germans were just like absolutely enamored by him. Like he was the great American like conqueror coming to like, you know, bring Germany into some new era or or something so that there's a sense that regardless of what Obama did in actual policy terms, Germans were still going to love him. And it leads to this kind of inelasticity where it doesn't matter what America does, it matters who America is and who American yes. presidents are. It's just yeah. a question of who the, if they like the figure, whether it's Obama or Biden, then they can do no wrong. If they don't like the figure in a very visceral way, as was the case with Donald Trump, even when Donald Trump did good things for Europe, it, didn't, it wouldn't matter, that would be completely irrelevant, which is actually how I think most people actually operate. It's a very human thing. Is that you know? If, if people are bad for us, if we like them, then we'll let them be bad to us indefinitely.
0: Yeah, you know, it's 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 funny that you mentioned that. I was thinking about this earlier today. I was talking to someone. Uh, so many of these panels; it sort of all melds into one. Um, it was a uh, uh, it was remarking basically on on how. Uh, didn't make any sort of connection explicitly, but I made the connection between how much the Europeans hated George W. Bush and thought that he represented the most odious things about America. Yeah. Cowboy, reckless, you know, invading countries, breaking shit, uh, crass, all the rest of it. Um, and of course they had, they didn't have Trump to compare him to and like Trump was completely unfathomable to him. But if you take a step back, um, you know, uh, especially in Germany, you can understand that after eight years of Bush, who was deeply, deeply unpopular in Germany, um, they see Obama, and already eight years of Bush made them start doubting America. You know that America was this reckless cowboy. That you know the post-Cold War uh, uh, sheen was coming off, um, all the the idealism and the rest of it. They just didn't buy it. They saw it as cowboyism, and so Obama represents again for Germans who who uh, I do think. You know, I've said this before on the podcast. I think have an unhealthy obsession with American race relations as uh, a means of of bringing America down to earth, and you know, pointing to the very real problems that America has itself. It makes Germans feel better in a in a paradoxical way. When America really, you know, had this breakthrough of electing a black man to the to the highest office. It also dazzled the Germans in particular, and I think a lot of Europeans across the Europe, a lot of liberal, you know, urban Europeans, it really did dazzle them. And so eight years of Obama, you know, he did get a, uh, away with a lot of it. Here in Central and Eastern Europe, in, in Bratislava, uh, in the Czech Republic, um, some of Obama's moves were actually quite resented when he was, uh, you know, the, the, the Russia reset and, uh, and yeah, uh, yeah. the missile defense stuff that he was doing. They, they were unhappy with him. But, of course, then after even all the sort of unhappinesses with Obama, four years of Trump, just everyone forgets that. So, of course, there's like a a huge breath, uh, you know, uh, a sigh of relief at this point. Um, And you're right. I mean, it is it's 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 it is personality based. But it's it's also it is this thing about about the importance of what I think is, you know. Well, maybe we can we can pick this apart a little bit more. Um, it's it's where I think you and I actually end up agreeing between our two essays is is the importance of of order. Now I know I know you know the divergence ends up being between whether values exist outside or not and how one thinks about them existing outside or not. I I don't think that our di- our uh, divergence on this question is that profound. You know, and I mean I actually agree with you uh, that that it has to ultimately reside in some sort of notion of of the divine, some sort of but only in that sense, if you think of values existing in the world only through God, it's because God presents a kind of moral order and he is the final arbiter of order. So you still need a kind of authority to appeal to. Since I'm not a godly person, my argument America. just sort of diverges from yours.
1: America says, is God.
0: And saying that that order, American order, allows for values to flourish. Yeah. And, and, and given that that's lost on these people— that these people are messianic without the God and not recognizing that, you know, the authority of America allows for values to, to flourish, I think it makes them get a lot of stuff backwards, including all of this, you know. Um, uh, and, and it's both the Europeans and the Biden folk. And so, you know, it's not that, that, that um, I think the Biden folk are, are, are acting in some sort of duplicitous way uh, or are spurning the Europeans. They just think they're they're going about it the right way. The Europeans feel like they're being spurned, but they can't really put their finger on it because he's saying all the right things. And I think it's just a big blunder, a really big blunder. I don't, I'm not sure it'll be catastrophic or anything, but it's certainly not smart, and they're not thinking about the world right.
1: Yeah, well, maybe this is a good time to remind our dear listeners that so the two essays that we're talking about are... The two most recent Friday essays, mine was titled Morality is Impossible Without Power. Oh, what a good title. I want to read that. Then the week before, uh, Demir wrote How Liberal Triumphalism Breeds Passivity. Oh, nice. Yeah. Look at these titles. Mm -hmm. And look, so um, not to push it too much, but if you guys want to read those um, essays, please do consider subscribing at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. I think actually our last few essays, we've almost been in conversation with each other. They're standalone pieces, but I think there's a certain set of themes that keeps on recurring. And I think it's been very helpful for me to sort of explore some of these ideas through the Friday essay. And maybe uh, one thing I was wondering, though, is, okay, so there's definitely one thing that we clearly agree on, which is that if you as you just mentioned if if we want values to matter in practical terms there has to be a guarantor and ultimately you know um someone who believes in god would say that god is ultimately sovereign in some sense but of course that's fairly abstract you need to obviously someone needs to impose order in this world on the ground in practical terms and it is difficult you know when i think about it to envision how you can have this spread of American values without American power. And that's where the title of my piece came from. And, you know, I'm willing to acknowledge that. I don't think it really creates a problem for those of us who believe in promoting democracy abroad or supporting human rights um, in other countries. We would just have to extend our argument to, to say that if we believe in these things, then we also have to believe in American hegemony at some level. We can't have this weird disjuncture where we say, oh, we want to fight for human rights abroad and we care about that and these are American values that we have to hold true to while at the same time saying that we want to undermine American hegemony and that we want America to be less powerful and less dominant. I think increasingly I, I feel like there's no way to square the circle unless you say you have to acknowledge the the, the fact of power, and this is where um, I suppose people could argue where my support for Bernie didn't wasn't entirely consistent, and there was a there was a sort of um, a dissonance because ultimately Bernie w- did seem to care quite passionately about the, the idea of Amer- some American values abroad, certainly but at the same time was very skeptical about the very structure of American power. Um, And I think that's a tough one. And I think that's a real, there's a real, um, what's the right word, paradox on the left. And uh, I don't know, I don't know how, uh, you know, someone who would be able to convey the Bernie position more effectively than I can, how they would uh, close the gap on that. But, um, But I think that's been a problem on the left for a long time that the very things they say they want are impossible without American power. But I guess the question that I would have to you, Demir, is, so we agree on that, but we still don't seem to agree on how important those values should be to American policymakers. But I, I don't quite know where exactly the point of divergence is. Do you want to take a stab at that?
0: Yeah, I can take a stab at that. Um let me just take a stab at the, the Bernie thing and tell me if I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kicking around the, the right thing. I think it's, it's that ultimately um, the Bernie values are informed, uh, maybe, maybe this is unfair, but like a more materialist reading of stuff. And so um, you get a certain kind of co- concept of, again, it's freestanding of like human dignity and equality um, that is theoretical, and ultimately, by materialists, it's, it's, it excuses the bad things that happen to sort of systemic iniquities. And again, it's like if you address those systemic iniquities, uh, these things get redressed. And you know, uh, these systemic iniquities are so systemic that our own system is tainted and polluted by it. So in a way you know it's it's i think what what motivates call it the broader left i don't know if i i don't know what bernie himself actually thinks on this but call it like the the yeah. more modern left sort of approach is that it, it it abstracts the state because the state itself is part of the the corrupting forces that lead to iniquity in the world i think i think that that is what it is whereas um so in a way, he's as blind as as Biden on this sort of stuff because he thinks that, you know, uh, these bad things can happen if, you know, the system is changed. And in international relations, it's fixing the system that is everything. And, and that's not exactly a power first sort of approach. They're not revolutionaries in the sense of we will capture the state and then, you know, bend the state like they're not like Lenin in that sense. Lenin understood the importance of power in a big way and and wielded it. You know what I mean? They're 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 much softer than that, and and have a much more theoretical and I think weaker understanding of how change happens in the world. Hmm. So that's my 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 stab at the at the Biden stuff. Uh, oh, sorry, at right the, at the Bernie stuff. Yeah. Um, on our divergence, I guess it really comes down to is is. Um, is at which end of the stick you start. I just start at the end of the stick where I I look first at, at uh, what I think is the, call them the, the gradients and what is feasible to a certain extent. Um, and then I apply the sort of values struggle on top of it. And so I'm... Uh, I'm just—I'm—I'm I'm not convinced at the end of the day that that the values will conquer the world. Uh, you know, I mean, to a certain extent, there is something uh, appealing about the kind of life that has been uh, made possible in the zone of peace in Europe. I think, and, and one could say, there's a kind of universal appeal to that. But it's complicated, and you even see it in Europe. Europe has been bridling under this for a very long time. And human nature being what it is, I, I think there's there's the reason it's worked in this part of the world at all is has a lot to do with uh, the Enlightenment tradition and a, a certain kind of shared history and how governments have been able to, to rise up. Um, I think when you look beyond that and you start with the values proposition first, I mean, I look forward to reading your book or the manuscript when it's ready to, to be read, but it's it's the question becomes of, um, you know, the the nuts and bolts of promoting democracy, how one does it in contested spaces where um, our writ doesn't hold, um, how one judges the effectiveness of the tools that we have in places where our writ doesn't fully hold, um, and, you know, uh, basically also measuring, uh, I think, a pretty serious credibility question which is where the um, I think the rubber meets the road for me on a lot of this stuff, you know, on specifically on, on NATO and NATO expansion. I think it's quite true that where NATO has expanded, it's it's been sort of the front line of where Europe has expanded later, and NATO does embed a lot of these values and does insist on some of these values being institutionalized over time as these countries sort of get into the Western fold. And at the same time, it's really interesting when you see... Uh, where the wave seems to have stopped and is, is, uh, is being rolled back right now, in Georgia, in Ukraine, in Belarus. Um, well, Belarus much less because they've been under Lukashenko this whole time. But, but you know, Ukraine uh, and Georgia were, were both tilting towards the West. Um, yeah. and, and Russia basically managed to change facts on the ground in such a way that they imposed a veto. Now, so the, 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 it really, the rubber meets the road for me on the values versus prudence question is how credible is it to insist on values in a place where we can't control the situation to make sure that those values triumph? Um, and if you are making that bet, you have to be willing to commit a pretty serious bet on uh, military confrontation in a place like Georgia and Ukraine— and I question our political will now, maybe that makes me more of a pessimist and a fatalist, and it's more important to be values first because you'd be bolder and you would not have allowed um, mm-hmm. Ukraine and Georgia to have gotten this far. I was just talking to uh you know a colleague uh you know a friend of ours in any case who 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 texted me and he said, um, "You know the more I think about it." George W. Bush should have, when Russia invaded Ukra- uh, Georgia, uh, sent troops immediately to Crimea and set up a, a permanent American base there just to, you know, for, uh, uh, for the security of the Black Sea region, that that would have sent the right signal to, to Russia at that point. That would have put a, a break on it. That's a bold move. And maybe I wouldn't have been advocating that because already I was skeptical whether we'd stand by it. So I think what it comes down to, Shadi, is like really on the, where the rubber meets the road between me and you on this. So I think if you're, if you're values first, I think you're, you're running a riskier policy. Maybe that's not always a bad thing. I'm temperamentally much more conservative and cautious on this. Mm. And maybe that is a bad thing sometimes. But I think that's, that's the main a key difference. Yeah, because I mean,
1: yeah, I wouldn't have advocated sending troops to Crimea back during the Bush administration, but I probably wouldn't have been opposed to it. It's a sort of thing that I'd be like, wait, do I really want to say this publicly? But deep down, I'd be like, yeah,
0: America, no.
1: because in the fuck end, yeah. I so I mean, oftentimes I come back to this point where it's like, we're America. Don't fuck with us. I mean, at some yeah. level that I think is what American policy should be like on a very like fundamental, um, w- like what is that? It, it is that the super it of America or something like that? Like there's this yeah, kind the of Id. the yeah. id. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. something from, uh, I forget what, uh, what's his name? Neat? No, no. That, the, that, that,
0: that, <laughs> that German pervert. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The German pervert. Um, yeah. and, um, and you, so you, it is a question of political will. So I share that skepticism. I, I, would, I wonder whether there is the political will for that kind of risky policy. But I guess what I would say is I want to advocate that we should have that political will. So if, it is, if that is, in fact, what we're lacking, there's a way to address that. It's a question of leadership and what individuals in policy making decisions are, are able and willing to do. And to close the gap, then I would say, oh, do people question whether we would stand by our commitment to Crimea after doing an initial intervention there during the Bush administration? Sure, they question that. Then we should, st- we should stand by that. That's ultimately up to us. That's not some sort of speculative question. We either do decide to stand by our commitments once we've made that initial step or we don't. So similarly on, on Syria— when Obama said Assad must go, it's not as big of a deal because it's just a rhetorical flourish. And I think it's understandable that sometimes the U.S. won't meet its own rhetoric because that's not a real – that's not a strong first step where if you do send um, – if you make some kind of military foray into Crimea, then you're already committing quite a lot. There's already a, a policymaking process that has gone into that, and there is a strong American interest in seeing it through. If it's just Obama saying a sentence in a speech, you don't really have the bureaucracy behind him. You don't have Obama behind himself, which was often the problem with Obama, is that he oftentimes seemed to be in this constant moral struggle with his own preferences. Um,
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But I think that once he said that, then—and once people hold him to that, um, then obviously I think—the red line is the more, I think, obvious— obvious example of that because that was actually about a credible threat of military force where the u.s said to the world that here's a red line and if the red line is crossed then america will be will be willing to use its military might um i think that once you say something like that i think even if it's bad policy even if you start to doubt yourself there has to be some willingness to see a commitment through um and to take responsibility for your own initial commitment. Um so that's what I would say. So if it is a question of political will, then we have a solution for that. We're not so it's not a question of American capabilities. It's not a question of whether America can do something. No one really doubts that America has or had the military capability to um to send troops into the, the what is the Caucasus <laughs> whatever that region's called. <laughs>
0: Look. Well, so let me just help you on on that one detail, though. I and it's the difference between what uh, this this colleague was advocating and, and uh, what happened with Obama, is that in fact uh, it's what what he was saying is not that you know in the caucuses Putin got what he wanted and he just blindsided us, basically dismembered Georgia and uh, and and sort of left it be. The the reaction, and this is smart. I mean, it's it's this is why I'm 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 I'm, I'm uh, sort of. Intrigued by the policy. The policy is not to then say we're sending troops to Georgia to defend Georgian territorial integrity. That's war. No, you you, you look ahead and you see, well, obviously Ukraine's going to be next. So you send troops to Ukraine and set up a base there, not as a, as a um, really even an explicit dare to the Russians, though a very implicit one, but saying we need uh, a base in Crimea and you get the Ukrainians to sign on for this. We need a base in Crimea to... Uh, you know, for security in the Black Sea. Yep. And ultimately, Crimea is the thing that the Russians want most. It's where, where uh, their, their bases are, and it, it, that's the, the thing that they, they really wanted more than anything. If the Ukrainians, if, if Bush had somehow managed to pull that off, I don't know how plausible that was back then, um, but he had somehow, you know, uh, ringed hands and was able to do it. You have, it's not so much a policy decision, and it's not so much rhetoric, it's a fact on the ground. And what's interesting about that is that you make a decision to basically expand your your sphere of order to a certain extent there. And then you have that kind of commitment, which is not a rhetorical commitment to values. It is a commitment to a territory and hegemony over it, you know? So it's. Okay, so you're saying. So if yeah. I understand
1: correctly, you're saying that the commitment to order and the military aspect is the fundamental starting point and then values flow from that once you've established that sphere of order so you're you're t- it's an ordering yeah. issue basically it is sequ-
0: it's an ordering issue and it's 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 not so much uh military it doesn't have to be a military it just means to be that 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 you know you wouldn't think to you wouldn't an adversary wouldn't think to go there you wouldn't have a revisionist go there because you're right we are very powerful the problem is, for me, from my standpoint, my criticism of sort of the, the maximalist neocon vision, which I think you know you, you're, you 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 tend to sometimes as well, is that that um, talking too much about the universals when uh, and not being at least internally cognizant of how they're not actually possible universally without us dominating the world, which is hard. We're not that powerful. Um, how that potentially gets us into binds because. We write checks our ass won't cash. Um, whereas, you know, the, the move to do something in Crimea before the Russians even did anything there, that's preventative, and that's an interesting way to both signal a wall and to dare them to breach it, you know, rather than just assuming these countries will all sort of fall into our sphere because our values are spreading inexorably. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's all I'm getting at there.
1: Okay, I mean that is helpful. Um, and again, maybe the maybe the gap isn't as large as we might have suspected. I think no. it's a, it's a you know, but we also we also do want there to be gaps because that's more fun. So
0: yes, of course, we'll figure something out, Shadi. So, Don't worry about it.
1: So on that note, um, wait, Demir, are we doing a bonus part two?
0: Yeah, let's do a bonus. Okay, I've got, s- I've got some time, so to-
1: that way we can just hype it in real time. And that yeah. so you guys are listening basically to our thought process of whether we 're about to do a bonus episode. we will, so stay tuned for Trans- that and transatlantic bonus transatlantic bonus if you're interested in listening to that to that bonus, uh, again, please do consider subscribing. Demir will also have the next Friday essay so that'll come out either after you listen to this, either the following day or who knows, maybe even the same day it 's hard time is um, time is a fiction. So um, keep an eye out. And um, Demir, I guess I'm about to talk to you again in a moment.
0: Yes, indeed. All right, Shadi, talk soon. Bye,
1: everyone.